is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. It's all about the money. The MOD has to decide what will go in the next round of government cuts. What does the future hold for Afghan interpreters post-2014? In 2011, when the risk to my life and my family was too much, I had to take a decision to, to leave my country, my family. And read your way to the top, the books recommended by the head of the military. This week, Whitehall departments have been putting the finishing touches to their opening bids for the latest spending review. These must be on the Chancellor's desk by Monday morning, the first day of the next spending round. So what will this mean for the Ministry of Defence? I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee, Professor Eric Grove, the Director of the Centre for International Security and War Studies at Salford University, and Richard Norton-Taylor, who writes on defence and security affairs for The Guardian. Hello to all of you. Uh, Professor Grove, first of all, the Defence Secretary has told the Chancellor in no uncertain terms that the armed forces cannot cope with the level of restraint being demanded by the Treasury. Equipment's being guaranteed at 1% increase but a 5% cut expected from the rest. What do you think the MOD's submission is likely to say? Well, they're likely to ask for more than they might get, but I think this is a story that goes back decades. The Ministry of Defence has always wanted more than the Treasury wanted to give it. In fact, it goes back, actually, not just decades, perhaps even hundreds of years. And so the MOD is going to set out its stall. Defence is supposed to be a priority of the current government, uh, but whether the Treasury in the current economic circumstances, which are certainly much less favourable than they thought at the time of the... Of the uh, of the rather misnamed Strategic Defence and Security Review, um, things are not as good. So therefore, money is short. That cuts are planned, and uh, it's going to be a very difficult job for them. Christopher, what do you think the submission will say? The submission will say that um, because it, it, it comes in this form, it says this is the amount we need, and this is what we need it for. You are asking us to make initially a five percent cut. You're guaranteed, but that's in quite separate from the equipment budget, okay? But we actually need 2% for the equipment budget, which you originally said. There you've got a problem, because do we start to breaking into the equipment budget, actually, to try and make your 5%? If you want us to have a strategic picture, in other words, what do you want us to do? Because we're not just buying equipment, we're not just sort of doing training in order that... We like to do it because we're three services. You've got to tell us what you expect us to do. We can then say, listen, this is what we've got. This is what we've got on order. This is our, these are our other commitments. And don't forget that apart from things like Afghanistan, the army, for example, has got some 27 commitments around the world. If you want us to carry those things out, we can then tell you, and we hear it as the example, we will tell you how much money we do need. If we cut 5% out of it, as you're asking then the following we cannot do. Are you happy with that? Richard Norton-Taylor, do you think the equipment budget may actually be at risk? Well, it could be a risk. I mean, I'd like to... <laughs> I'm much more confident being a Treasury man laying at the MOD rather than vice versa. There's lots of things the Treasury could say about the MOD budget at the moment. But anyway, if the equipment budget, which has been guaranteed according to... Unusually, the Treasury has said yes to $160 billion over 10 years from last year. Um, so the Treasury would say, look, we've done, done you a favour there. But um, 
if the equipment budget is going to be guaranteed, as Hammond insists, Philip Hammond insists, then the, the, the money's got to, the cuts anyway, 5% or whatever is going to be, uh, going to be squeezed from other areas, the defence estate and personnel in particular, and I think the army is going to be in more trouble. Christopher, how much money does the MOD actually have and how much will it say it needs? Um, it will probably say that it cannot do um, a budget safe between now and 2015, but certainly say between now and 2020, which is the arch years of all the defence planning at the moment. Around the equivalent of what you would have today around about, say, let's say, £36 billion, uh, annually. But rich... Uh, yeah, they're not going <laughs> to... Eric sort of Is that pipes Eric up. there in the background? Eric, Eric, they're not going to get that. I mean, especially the Navy's on a hiding to nothing. I think what somebody is going to have to do, and um, that is to look at the way the Navy actually spends its money. Now, Bernard Hall, whose task has been to actually sort of say, look, we've got to get the budget right, we've got to get the accounting better. There's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of waste... There's still a lot of underspending as well. And so I think that the Treasury, and most importantly, forget the Chancellor, start thinking of the uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And the Chief Secretary of the Treasury is going to start saying to them in, in public terms, and that hasn't been done thus far, listen, you are not running a tight ship compartment, uh, a department within Whitehall, you've got to present us with what you're spending and how you're spending it, the efficiency. The Defence Ministry is two things. One, it is very arrogant, the way it presents its, its the details of how it does things. The second thing, it is hugely incompetent in, in so many ways. <laughs> Eric Grove, what difference will the end of combat operations in Afghanistan do to the sums? Well, hopefully it will save some money, but on the other hand, a lot of the uh, Af Afghan operations have been funded through, uh, through, uh, through rather special requirements that don't necessarily come out of the budget. I mean, defence actually isn't huge as part of the national budget. It's, we spend less on defence per annum than we do on the debt. We spend a good deal less than we do on education and health and certainly a good deal less than we do on social security. So, in fact, although we might have the fourth largest defence budget in the world, actually it isn't a huge amount out of our national wealth. But, of course, uh, uh, um, uh, Chris is absolutely right in the sense that the Treasury do not think much about the way the MOD does its business. They never have done. So, I've just, so sorry, who is actually on. making these decisions at the MOD who is not held in high regard by the Treasury? Well, the civil servants and the armed forces yeah, together. Yeah, the chiefs of staff. The, the Treasury staff, don't yes. think much of the chiefs of staff at all. They say they keep moving the goalposts. But they never have done. I've just been reading some very interesting new material based on the documents of the John Mott Defence Review and the Thatcher government in its early days back in, back in 1979, 1980. It sounds very, very similar to the situation we're in today. And, and if I may, can I add yeah, something? Yeah, and, ahead, Richard. Well, the one irony is, of course, the chief secretary of the Treasury, which Christopher talked about just now, who happens to be the Liberal Democrat, Democrat Danny Alexander, who is responsible for looking on, quote, alternatives to Trident, unquote. Now, it came up in the John Knott Review, too, in Lewin at the time of the uh, early um, 80s, where a lot of the cabinet there was talking about Trident and question marks about Trident. I mean, there are... I mean, most people would say on the actual uh, kind of equipment, how the budget, the defence budget, is skewed, that 30% uh, or there, thereabouts uh, soon will be of the equipment budget will be spent on, on, on a new fleet of Trident submarines if the Conservatives get in after 2015 and do what they say they're going to do. And the aircraft carrier is going to cost a lot of money. And what do you put on the aircraft carrier, JSF 
F-35s. I mean, that, there are a lot of questions there. And that's the argument within the MOD, actually, but it's stifled that argument now. But it's a question that, it, that you, can't, you cannot uh, get, abstract the, that kind of equipment programme and the choices there away from the overall budget. But the thing is, Richard, isn't it, is that uh, all the things, if you didn't want an aircraft carrier or a frigate or, or, or an aircraft, uh, you just say so as Defence Secretary. What the Defence Secretary cannot do, the one item that he has no control over, is Trident. That is a that is a government policy yeah. decision, and it's got nothing to do almost with the defence budget. Yeah, uh, it, Eric, it comes out of the defence yeah. budget, though. Eric Grove, yeah. um, what kind of future commitments is, is it? Trident? Is it the aircraft carriers that will be factored into all of this? Well, the problem here is the industrial implications. When they tried to cancel the second aircraft carrier, BAE quite correctly wrote to the government as saying, "Look, if you cancel the second aircraft carrier, no more warship building industry." And the problem is that if you cancel the Trident submarine replacement program. The building that I can see over the bay from my home in Blackpool, in Barrow, where they build the nuclear submarines, might well go out of business. And the people who work there will be paid off. And we won't be able to build nuclear submarines in the future, which have been, and I think I still are, a significant part of our maritime capability. So we have to think about the industrial implications of what we do. And the carrier programme and the submarine programme, if we cut them or try and cut them, we may end up pretty weak by the later part of the 2020s or the early 2030s. Richard Norton-Taylor, European Defence Spend is going down. How will these yeah. cuts affect relations with the United States? Well, the United States have recently been murmuring out of the United States. There was a big New York Times piece the other day saying the, Ameri uh, the Americans are saying, looking at Britain, for example, saying, is Britain going to be a real military ally in the, in, the, in the anonymous, I know anonymous, but senior U.S. officials saying that, according to the New York Times, is Britain going to be a real military ally uh, or is it going to be, uh, is it going to keep uh, or have a new trident? If Americans are asking questions like that, um, that, that is very significant, I think, actually. And, and also Trident, I mean, I'm not going on about the whole nuclear deterrent business, but I mean, uh, Trident and, and aircraft carriers, they're not, they're not a job creation program, actually. They shouldn't be. They should be part of a co coherent uh, military uh, um, and coherent military stance. And uh, you can build other kind of uh, nuclear propelled. Uh, driven submarines. Anyway, um, the, the European thing, you go to European conferences and they're all, they're all cutting their defence budget like mad, most small countries. They, they, the French in such a, 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 a crisis now, really, financially, that they, they're delaying even the white paper on defence, let alone decisions, um, which has actually implications for the British, if the British are really going to mean when they say about bilateral cooperation with the one country they res respect militarily in, 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 in Europe, which is France. Um, there's a lot of talk about, of course, more coordinated Europe and smaller European countries getting together than Nordic countries and so on. Christopher. But, yeah. uh, just just uh, on America, America's got a trillion dollar cut. Absolutely. In, in, in its own defence budget. So let them get on to that before they come to us. But, but I think what we've got to get in perspective about the submission on Monday, it is the beginning of a process that will probably decide um, the format of defence spending of almost the sort of operations that somebody, for example, joining the, uh, joining the military, let's say, this week, it will almost determine what he or she is going to be doing, let's say, in 10 years' time. The important thing is post-Afghanistan. At the moment, the public is right behind the military. Never has been greater. Come 2014, when people start pulling out and we're hitting for a, for a general election... The chiefs of staff know very well that that is the point where the politicians will get 
pretty feel, feel pretty strong about the whole thing, and they will know they will have less chance of having the public behind them for defence spending. Well, let's war talk fatigue, now. War fatigue, yeah. Let's talk now about one particular aspect of spending cuts, how they'll affect Britain's fight against terrorism. MI5 and MI6 have apparently warned the Treasury directly that any cuts to their budgets would make Britain more vulnerable to a terrorist attack. Richard, um, there hasn't been a major terrorist attack on Britain since July 2005. People still regularly being caught and jailed for terrorist offences, though. Yeah, and, and there have been plots, as uh, MI5 said. Now, I think one of the key things about this, and this is, I think, what the MI5 um, chiefs are thinking about, they, they're, they're, they say, and the trouble is with Whitehall, the stovepipe thinking, there's a military budget on the one hand, and there's the intelligence security budget on the other. And especially security should be much more linked the heads of MI5 and MI6 are saying in, in budgetary terms um, the security intelligence budget should be much more linked with the military because after all the military uh, are using much more intelligence, much more GCHQ and, and, and SIS, MI6 in operations and future kind of operations, special forces, need for intelligence much more rather than sort of boots on the ground conventional stuff and um, I think th I think there's a, they, have, they have a strong arm because they are concerned, the security intelligence agencies, MI5 and MI6 because the threats are still out there, the bigger threat uh, as much a threat which they've got to uh, try and prevent, of course, um, uh, now, uh, as any time. And then Syria, the hundreds of you know, young kids going to Syria, even uh, well, that's what the French going to Mali and week, all that stuff. He? Yeah. That he's saying that people have gone off to Syria, we're coming yeah. back, causing problems back at home. Oh, could do, could do, yeah. So he says. Yeah, um, uh, Eric Grove, uh, according yeah. to one newspaper report, Britain's security service have had to scale back operations in a way that's worried them. Do you hear that kind of thing as well? Are there lots of cuts going on well, there? Well, yes, but of course any department is going to be worried about its budget being cut. I mean, MI5 quite rightly has had a large amount of money spent on it because there has been a serious threat of, of uh, locally radicalised jihadis, 7-7 and all that and others later. And I have a great deal of respect for the way the security services have dealt, have dealt with the threats. I think they've dealt with them extremely effectively. But... They have to take their share in budget cuts alongside the other, you know, alongside the other departments. I can understand why they're saying this. Whether, in fact, it is true that we will be much more vulnerable because of the cuts, that's a moot point. But on the other hand, we need to be very careful. We do have this threat from locally, ra locally radicalised people. We've seen what happened in America with locally radicalised people. And therefore, we need to have a well-funded, uh, significant organisation that is able to penetrate, uh, to penetrate conspiracies and, and, and nip things in the bud, which I think they've done rather well so far. Christopher, do you have any idea how many terrorist plots aimed at Britain are foiled on an annual basis? No. Is uh, it anybody? No. Uh, well, you don't know because even even the security service doesn't know yeah. how, you know what what's foiled. Some stuff is being foiled simply by local groups, uh, police, <coughs> or whatever. Listen, let's get this right. Why have all these stories surfaced at the moment? And the answer is, is because that the budget stuff is coming up next week. Right. And therefore, you've got the uh, the Home Secretary, who's responsible for the security service, and I'm suggesting scaremongering plans to protect people's budgets. Well, I hope so, because if you put people who are very bright into these jobs, then they know exactly how to how, how to do it. And every department does it. There's no reason to believe that, um, for example, MI6, I think, probably got less pressure on its budget than MI5. And that's particularly important to remember. But then you get the complications. MI5 works with special branch, which works with terrorist branch, with anti-terrorist units. That's what I'm saying. Uh, that's what I'm saying. They've got to join together much more. And they've got to do that. And what we might see 
in a couple of years' time, we, which we, we, we started to see, and that is one organisation that is running the whole thing, and that is going to be fascinating to do. That's the only way that you'll be able to carry on working as you are with the budget as it is. All right, Christopher Lee, Eric Graves, stay with us. Richard Norton-Taylor, thank you very much for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, are chemical weapons being used in Syria? And we examine General Sir David Richard's recommended reading list. There are currently more than 600 interpreters working for British forces in Afghanistan. The risks of the job are high. More than 20 have been killed. Dozens more have been seriously injured. They and their families also face death threats from the Taliban. Three Afghan interpreters are threatening to sue the government unless they're given the same rights to settle in Britain as those who worked in Iraq. One of them, Mohammed, told BFPS why he sought asylum in the UK. We were on a patrol out and uh, I was blown up by an IED and uh, unfortunately um, a British officer, he died of the result of the IED. I was severely injured in 2011 when the risk to my life and my family was too much. I had to take a decision to, to leave my country, my family. Our reporter, Rosie Layden, has spoken to lawyer Andrew Morris, who's represented several interpreters seeking asylum in Britain. They have to languish, basically, in very, very basic accommodation, basic food. I don't think sometimes the food's actually adequate. Um, and they have to wait a long time to get a decision, where, in fact, these are people that have actually fought for our troops. Um, and they've done good things for the country, and they, they feel that that shouldn't happen to them. And do you believe the interpreters are genuinely at risk if they remain in Afghanistan? I think there's every reason to think that they are. Um, I think the work that they do puts them in such close proximity to politicians in Afghanistan. Some of them are even on the media there. And also there's been an incident of someone having a gun pointed at them and someone being called an infidel because they work with the British Army. There is a package available for Iraqi interpreters who've worked with British forces that gives them the right to resettle in the UK. Do you think it's fair that their Afghan equivalents are not offered the same kind of treatment? They've done exactly the same standard of work. They've put themselves on the front line. They've fought for the troops. They often have to not wear the same equipment the troops wear. Um, and they have died, in fact, for um, the work that we do, this country does in Afghanistan. So. There's absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be, I think, an automatic, very quick process, which is dealt within a number of weeks. There are some signs that the government are reconsidering this. And one option that has been mentioned is that they could offer so-called financial incentives to Afghan interpreters to remain in Afghanistan. Do you think that could work? I think the financial incentives um, would not work for them. But I think that the reason that that's being offered is because they are the most intelligent, the most educated um, and their skills are so valuable to the work that we do in that country that the government thinks that they should probably stay there. But it doesn't address the danger that they might be in? No, it doesn't. No, I agree. Um, the danger will not be addressed by an incentive such as that. Um, it's, it means, I think, that they should be allowed to come here to this country. They should be allowed to be given asylum. There's nothing that the country can do to stop um, the danger that they face in Afghanistan, as far as I'm concerned. That was Andrew Morris speaking to our reporter, Rosie Layden. Well, yesterday, the Foreign Office released a new statement concerning the issue. It said the government is looking very carefully at how they're going to make appropriate provision to support locally employed staff as they draw down and eventually end the combat mission in Afghanistan. Christopher, other NATO nations give a better deal to their interpreters. Why don't we? Um, a lot of other nations do it because they have worked for the nationals and also they've worked on a very much smaller basis. 
somebody like France, which is a large, uh, uh, in relative terms, a large part of uh, the operation in Afghanistan, don't actually have that many people, then they can actually do it. The other part of it is because of the, um, I suppose because the EU... uh, Transmission uh, trans- transitions in the, in the autumn, for example, on who can come and who cannot come. The United Kingdom government is under very, very special pressures, or so that it seems. In Iraq, after the Iraq War, uh, we there was a heck of a debate. Oh no, we don't need these people here. That's changed, and the mood has changed, and it's almost if it's ungrateful. And the other thing, the people are inv- uh, are vulnerable so they would say if we could help you we're paying them a thousand thousand dollars a month and the Taliban says hey you, you really were in the pay I think the conclusion to this is something which they might do with NATO and that's find jobs for them and then say you can come through the normal asylum channels but with somewhere to go and that could start spreading people back through the NATO membership. Alright Christopher stay with us This is BFBS Sidrep well, NATO Secretary General Anjus Rasmussen has expressed the organisation's extreme concern about the deteriorating situation in Syria. This week, NATO foreign ministers gathered in Brussels amid claims from Israel explicitly accusing Syria of using chemical weapons against rebel forces. The US Secretary of State said that the alliance needed to consider how to respond to protect its members. Tom Porteous, Deputy Programme Director of Human Rights Watch, joins us now from Washington. Hello, Tom. The U.S. says it's concerned about the possible use of chemical weapons in Syria, but says it's seen no conclusive evidence it's happening. Do you believe chemical weapons are being used? Well, I mean, we haven't seen any conclusive evidence uh, either, and I don't think that any conclusive evidence has been put into the public domain, as it were, and certainly there hasn't been uh, any attack or, or any attacks in which you know large numbers of people have been killed on the scale of, say, the Iraqi attack um, against Halabja. Um, uh, having said that, of course, you know, there are many, many, many unlawful uh, airstrikes by the Syrian government uh, in which uh, several thousand uh, civilians have been killed um, and, and very little has been, has been done about that. So the problem with making the use of uh, chemical weapons a red line that will provoke a serious international or U.S. Uh, response is that it suggests that anything short of the use of uh, chemical weapons is acceptable. And as far as we're concerned, it's not enough, not enough is being done to prevent uh, the conventional unlawful attacks that are taking place, including the use of uh, banned weapons, uh, in, in other words, uh, cluster munitions. Yes, and indeed the NATO Secretary General said he wouldn't comment directly on the use of chemical weapons, but said that NATO would protect Turkey. Do you think NATO should be doing more in Syria? Well, uh, it, it, it's really, um, you know, not uh, necessarily a question of, of, of a military response, although that should certainly be put into consideration. Um, but there's other, there are other things that can be done. Uh, clearly, the, the diplomatic response, the political pressure on Syria to stop these uh, abominable crimes uh, has been uh, paralyzed, if you like, or deadlocked because of uh, what's going on at the Security Council with the uh, Russian and uh, Chinese uh, vetoes. Um, there, there is probably more that could be done economically. Uh, certainly more needs to be done to tighten uh, the arms embargo against the Syrian government. Uh, and, of course, uh, more needs to be done to uh, reach those who are affected by 
the, the, the civilians who are being affected by the tactics uh, that, is be, that are being used by the, uh, the, Syrian, uh, the Syrian government in terms of humanitarian aid. Cross-border humanitarian aid needs to be rapidly stepped up. What kind of information are you getting from people on the ground in Syria about the way the situation has deteriorated? Um, well, uh, we've just uh, completed a, a, a mission to northern Syria and we're putting out a press release uh, today. Uh, and we're, we're focusing very much on these continuing airstrikes because we believe that they are very, uh, uh, a very important part of the conflict. They're spreading terror among the Syrian uh, civilian population in the areas that they're taking place and they're also causing massive humanitarian problems. Uh, so the press release that we're putting out today documents... Uh, uh, five at attacks that took place between uh, a uh, uh, the middle of march and uh, uh, and uh, April the seventh in which uh, uh, many people were killed, including children and and many more uh, injured. These are all unlawful uh, airstrikes and it follows on from a report that we put out earlier this month uh, documenting uh, about sixty unlawful air attacks uh, since uh, june. Uh, July of, uh, of of last year, and uh, as I said, I mean these uh, attacks are spreading, you know, t uh, terror among the population. They're causing massive displacement. Uh, they're causing humanitarian problems, and they're killing and maiming people. Um, so, as I said, you know, this focus on on chemical weapons is obviously important because uh, there is, uh, you know, a real threat there. There are, you know, the Syrian government does have large stockpiles of chemical weapons, and if they did use them in a meaningful way that would have a massive humanitarian and human rights impact. Um, but at the same time, you know, th 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 there are serious uh, humanitarian impacts from con unlawful conventional uh, 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 attacks, use of conventional weapons, that we think not, not enough is being done to, uh, to put pressure on Syria to stop. All right, Tom Porteus from Human Rights Watch, thank you very much for your time today. So, here's a little light reading for any aspiring young officer with their eyes on the top job in the military. The Chief of the Defence Staff has issued a reading list of 90 books ranging from critical works on British military engagements to the life story of Steve Jobs and even Sir Clive Woodward's account of how the England rugby team won the World Cup. Uh, Professor Eric Groves is still with us. Um, you must have read a few books in your time. What stands out on this list for you, Eric? Well, the thing that worried me was the bit I saw anyway. Perhaps I didn't see all of it is that there was not much about the sea. Well, of course, I would say that. <laughs> sort of, you mean your books weren't on that, Eric? No, 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 no. I don't mind about that. There are other books on the sea better than mine. But it struck me that it was very land-orientated, which mm. you'd expect from, from David Richards. He's a soldier. And a lot of stuff about general strategy, a lot of the stuff that's, uh, that's come out of the, of the, of the, um, of the centre in, um, in Shrivenham and so on. But I, I only counted, in, in my looking at the list, two books. Andrew Gordon's book, The Rules of the Game, although interesting, and I know it's really appealed to the staff college market, is getting a little bit out of date. And Andrew Lambert's excellent book, which has altered our, uh, which has altered our approach to the origins of the First World War and what the British thought that economic warfare might do. But there is nothing there. For example, Geoffrey Till's book on maritime strategy, mm. that, is, that is probably the key book on current maritime operations. It's not there. And it's a little bit of sea blindness, I think, actually. Mm. Uh, Christopher, this is um, published by the Defence Academy, oversees the training of young officers. What are they supposed to learn from it exactly? Well, if it, one thing they're going to have to learn is that you can give up soldiering 
um, because you'll spend all your time reading. I actually don't believe... 90's that, quite a lot, isn't it? Let's yeah, face I so. don't believe the Chief of the Defence Staff has read any of these. Uh, I mean, we well, well, if he has... He might have read some of them. Well, he might have read... He might, <laughs> might have read his own, because his is on there, isn't oh, it? Oh, I know. I yes, I wouldn't that, pass actually. that on to anybody, frankly. <laughs> but, no, um, I'm, uh, you know, in, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, some of the stuff uh, that's on... I would recommend The Glorious Art of Peace, and that's from the Iliad to Iraq, which is a John Giddings book. Um, I quite like uh, uh, Joe Nye's, the, 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 you know, the, the future of power. If you really want to get into the debate about, should, as we were earlier, about should there be trident or what, go back and find Michael Quinlan's book, which is on the list, uh, thinking about nuclear weapons. Um, and also, go back even further, Bill Slim, you know, in Second World War, Burma campaigns, etc., Australian who became Governor General, he talks about defeat into victory. What you do about leadership once you've uh, once you've uh, over the war. But the other thing he's got on this, uh, David Chandler's very good. The, uh, the military maxims of Napoleon. Napoleon lost. <laughs> you, know, you know. Listen, can I just add three books uh, that I would tell you, and they're novels. One is Eric Romeo Remarque's book. Uh, all quiet on the Western Front, to see how people think in terms of, uh, of being at war or used to think and how much effect it has in the country. The Red Badge of Courage, which was about this American Civil War, if you want to know about how America thinks, think about the Red Badge of Courage because the Americans killed each other at the rate of 650,000. That's more than they lost in two wars. And the last one is a wonderful book called it's called From Vanguard to Trident. It's by Eric Grove, fortunately. <laughs> and there we must leave it, gentlemen. Professor Eric Grove from the University of Salford, thank you very much for your time today, Christopher. Good to see you as ever. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now. Thank you.